Hello and welcome to the Deathcast, the place where the creepy cool kids come to learn about their true crime. I am your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to go down another true crime rabbit hole. Before we get going, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you enjoy what I do, please consider subscribing wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts and leaving a five-star review, which we do in fact have one this week. This comes from Apple Podcasts, t.marie13, Excellent podcast, five stars. I am so glad I found this podcast. Interesting and well-researched topics. This is the best podcast I have listened to. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, T. Marie 13. I greatly appreciate the fact that you enjoy what I do and all of the work I put into researching each and every one of these cases. Moving along, if you'd like to help out with the show, you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash deathcast and become a member of the Coffee Club. Those of you who have done so, it is greatly appreciated. If you would like to follow me on social media, just look for Deathcast Podcast, Deathcast Pod. Or simply The Deathcast. You can find me on most social media sites underneath those monikers. Lastly, if you are an advertiser who would like to advertise on this show, please reach out to my agents at BigPondPodcasts.com for rates and availability. Alright, now that all of the business is out of the way, get yourself something to drink. Find a nice comfy chair, kick back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. So this week we are returning to a topic we have covered before, and it's one that I personally don't believe gets enough attention amongst the true crime community. And that is political extremism. In our case, we are looking once again at the white power movement and white skinhead extremists, this time in the form of an organization known as the Order. I briefly touched on the Order when I did the episode on Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, as well as Chevy Kehoe. And just like I did with those episodes, I just want to give out a quick disclaimer that if you are uncomfortable hearing discussions of these organizations, ideologies, and belief, I completely understand you not listening to this episode but just know that I believe in order to face an enemy, we need to know everything that we can about them. And in this case, I'm talking specifically about individuals who hate and target others solely based on their political ideology, the color of their skin, or their religious beliefs. That kind of thing is the most immature and asinine ideology I can think of, and one I've never been able to grasp or ascribe to, as I believe in taking each individual 
on a person-by-person basis and not targeting an entire group based on things that are A, none of your business, and B, outside of anybody's control. Now, there's a lot of places I could start the story of the order, but I think that the best place we can start is with their most infamous crime and then kind of work our way backwards to figure out who and what was involved and how all of this went down. The Order was a white supremacist group who were active from September of 1983 until December of 1984, so just over a year. They were also known within the white power movement as Bruder Schweigen. And like a lot of these groups, they were part of the alt-right militia movement within the United States that believed in liberating the United States from what it termed a Zionist-occupied government or Zog, and the establishment of a whites-only homeland in the Pacific Northwest. If you ever look into any of these organizations, particularly the ones that are extremely active and have an outward propensity for violence, you'll find that a lot of them share this belief that the Pacific Northwest should be reclaimed and segregated from the rest of the country as an area where, quote-unquote, only the pure can live and thrive. At roughly 9.30 p.m. on June 18, 1984, Jewish radio host Alan Harrison Berg arrived back at his home in Denver, Colorado. Berg had been out on a dinner date with his ex-wife, Judith. The two of them were working on trying to reconcile after the delusion of their marriage. Now, a little bit about Alan Berg. He was a radio host. He had also worked as a lawyer. He had a very confrontational style on air, specifically he would taunt and target local residents whom he knew to be racist and to hold anti-Semitic beliefs. And while this did lead to him having a fairly successful show, at its peak I believe his radio program was broadcast in over 30 states, It also led to him becoming the target of white nationalists and neo-Nazis who saw him as something of a, you'll pardon the expression, an uppity Jew. So he really drew their ire and they constantly targeted him and harassed him, something that, according to those who knew Berg, they stated that he saw this as something of a victory, that he was able to 
get these idiots all riled up by the his what the things he said, calling them on the phone to discuss their beliefs, all of that kind of thing. It was kind of shock radio, but there was a point behind all of it. So now as Berg stepped from his black Volkswagen Beetle, he was cut down by a hail of machine gun fire. You did hear me right on that. This machine gun fire, these guys were not playing around. This wasn't some drive-by where they're using handguns or anything like that. The individuals responsible for Berg's murder actually were able to get the hands on some pretty heavy weaponry, and they used it on him. Berg ended up being hit a total of 12 times, and as I understand it, he died at the scene almost instantly. Before the assailants fled into the night, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of evidence for police to go off of. They had the spent shell casings of 45 caliber bullets. While there wasn't a lot of evidence to process at the crime scene, the Denver police strongly suspected that members of either the white power movement or the Christian identity movement may be responsible. Now, the Christian identity movement, I've discussed it in other episodes. I will briefly describe what it is here. It's really a bastardized version of Christianity that believes that only people of Celtic and Germanic and or Aryan descent are the true descendants of Abraham at all from the Bible and are ergo the only true descendants of the ancient Israelites. They believe that all these others who claim to be descendants of these individuals are actually evil, the enemy, etc., etc. They also believe that all of these quote-unquote lesser races will be enslaved or exterminated in the coming white paradise on Earth. The reason that they honed in on this train of thought so quickly is that Berg had been targeting believers in the Christian identity over the last few weeks and months of his show, so much so that he'd had callers calling in and he would get them all rattled and worked up, that kind of thing, really poking the bear. Now, later on, Berg's wife, or ex-wife, Judith, would state that it was her belief that had her husband known he was going to be targeted and killed, she doubted very heavily that he would have changed tact. I cannot say whether or not that is true. I have to believe that there is some form of self-preservation and that Berg, who 
let's face it, he's on the radio, he's an entertainer, would have toned things down somewhat if he realized just how dangerous these individuals that he was targeting actually could be. Now, if you believe the chief of police from Denver, Chief Donald Molnix, he would later claim that instantly the police knew that these were the individuals who were responsible. However, interviews he gave in the months immediately after Berg's death paint a much different picture. I'm going to read some excerpts from an article here from the Rapid City, South Dakota Journal dated June 25th, 1984. Headline of the article is Detective Sev's Berg Murder Probe at Loose Ends. Denver AP. The Allen Berg murder investigation is at loose ends a week after the controversial talk show host was gunned down in his East Denver driveway, says Don Molnix, chief of detectives for the Denver police. Molnix further went on to discuss the fact that there were no firm leads, motives, or definitive suspects in the death of Allen Berg. Quoting again from the article, In the first four days after Berg, 50, was killed outside of his townhouse in East Denver Monday night, a special task force of 46 detectives interviewed between 200 and 300 people. The police also reviewed tapes of Berg's radio show, which was hosted at that time on KOA, in an attempt to find those who may have made death threats to the host on air. We will get back to this case in just a moment. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And it lasts for 15-plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water and a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free 2-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 portable blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free 2-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Again, that's BlendJet.com, and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D, at checkout to get 12% off and free two-day shipping.
We are back. When we left, we were discussing an article from the South Dakota Rapid City Journal where the future chief of police, Don Molnix, was talking about how they really didn't have any suspects. The article further goes on to discuss how the police then turned to the Federal Bureau of Investigation for help in cracking this case. So as you can see there, the police are trying to piece together what happened and having very little success in this matter. However, all of this changed in December of 1984. This comes from an article in the Salt Lake Tribune dated December 18, 1984 by Joe Whelan. Gun that killed Allenberg found in neo-Nazis home. Quote, Exactly six months after talk show host Alan Berg was slain in his driveway, Denver's top detective is exploring the first big break in the case, the discovery of the murder weapon at the home of an avowed neo-Nazi arrested after a shootout with police. Don Molnix, the police department's chief of investigation, said Monday he is going to Boise, Idaho to interview Gary Yarbrough about the killing of Berg, who was known for his caustic criticism of white ring groups. The discovery of the murder weapon at the Sandpoint, Idaho home of Yarbrough, once head of security for a neo-Nazi group called the Aryan Nations, for the first time links the case with white supremacists who have grown increasingly active in the Pacific Northwest, authorities say. Molnick said he does not plan to pursue Yarbrough's tie to white supremacy movement and will leave that part of the investigation to the FBI. So here we have... The FBI, who at this time were heavily targeting the white supremacist, white separatist, Christian identity movements in the United States. They get into a shootout with this individual, Gary Yarbrough. Now, the story of how Yarbrough came to be involved in a shootout with federal authorities is difficult at best to try and piece together. From what I can gather from various articles and police reports, Yarbrough encountered FBI agents at or near his home, at which point a shootout ensued. And Yarbrough, along with a friend of his by the name of Robert T. Matthews, then fled the area. Police searched Yarborough's home. It was at this point that they discovered the MAC-10 machine gun, which was later sent to FBI headquarters where ballistic tests were conducted, and it was found that this weapon ballistically matched the one used to take the life of Alan Berg. Now, both of these men, Yarbrough and Matthews, were members of the Aryan Nation. They are a group that we are very well acquainted with here in the crypt as both Chevy Kehoe and other white supremacists who were rumored to have been involved in the Oklahoma City bombing 
had ties to this organization. The Aryan Nations, for those not familiar with it, were a very large and nationally known white supremacist organization based in Idaho, where they had a 28-acre compound where they hosted various events, as well as paramilitary training for their members preparing for the overthrow of the United States government along with what they saw as a coming race war. Like a lot of these groups, Aryan Nations did have chapters spread out throughout the country. However, they were really decentralized and one of the reasons for this and possibly the main reason for it was to keep the main leadership, which for most of his existence existed solely in the hands of Richard Gernt Butler. This was mainly done to avoid the organization as a whole being brought up on RICO charges for any of the crimes committed by the various cells while the average rank and file of this group were not the most intelligent, the leaders did at least take some notes from the Italian Mafia, which had been decimated in the 1980s due to Rico statuettes. The Aryan Nations, as it progressed through the 80s and 90s, became more decentralized. And while we can't definitively say that the reason for this was to offer layers of protection to the upper echelon of the organization, given what we know about the individuals who were involved, this is more likely than not the case. Because these organizations are constantly getting tied up in lawsuits and other court proceedings and you can't run an organization if every time you turn around the head of your group is being called into court or being charged with something else. Back to Yarborough and Matthews. Yarborough was eventually taken into custody without incident. However, he denied having any knowledge of Berg and stated that he had only ever heard of the man through television news reports. Also in the search of Yarborough's home, police found numerous weapons such as explosives, crossbows, and other illegal firearms. And they believed that he may possibly have been planning some form of a terrorist attack. It's interesting to note that at the time Yarborough was arrested and the hunt for Matthews continued, police came forward and stated that up until that time, they had seen no evidence showing that the Aryan Nations was in fact involved in any sort of violent criminal activity. Which brings us back to Robert J. Matthews. 
Matthews was born January 16, 1963 in Marfa, Texas. At age 11 in Phoenix, Arizona, Matthews joined the John Birch Society before later being baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1969. It's known that at some point Matthews formed a anti-communist militia along with other Mormon survivalists called the Sons of Liberty, which is said to have had 30 members at its peak. This was in the early 1970s. By 1973-74, Matthews had become a tax denier and ended up getting in trouble with the IRS after he claimed 10 dependents on his tax return. Matthews ended up being given a six-month probationary sentence. In 1974, Matthews' probation ended. This was around July of that year, and he and his father moved to to Medellin Falls, Washington, which has an exceedingly small population, where Matthews purchased 20 acres of land from which he could raise cattle. He also took up work with the Bunker Mill Mine Company as an electrician, and he held this job until 1977 when the mine closed at which point he got a job with the Portland Lehigh Cement Company. Numerous sources have stated that it was during this period of time that Matthew's political ideology, which was already leaning extremely right, took a sharp turn. In 76, he married a woman named Debbie McGarity. The couple would eventually adopt a son in 1981. Matthews did have one other child, a daughter he had with a mistress of his. Various websites have that Matthews officially became a white supremacist, full-blown, around 1981, but we do have to take these sources with a grain of salt because these same sources state that Matthews joined the National Alliance, which was similar in vain to the Aryan Nations, although a much bigger organization. National Alliance was actually founded by an individual by the name of William Luther Pierce, who wrote a book which has become something of a Bible for white nationalists known as the Turner Diaries. I could find no definitive evidence ever linking Matthews to the National Alliance or to being a member of the organization. And since on this show we don't present things as being a fact without definitive evidence, this is one of those parts that we're going to have to put off to the could possibly have happened, but there's no real way to be certain pile. What we do know, however, is that there was some crossover between members of the Aryan Nations and the National Alliance, 
at times you would have individuals being members of both organizations or leaving one organization and joining another. So it is possible that Matthews was, in fact, tied in with this group. Be that as it may, the book that Pierce had written, The Turner Diaries, was and still is widely read among those who ascribe to the right-wing white supremacist ideology and the Christian identity ideology. And in fact, the organization that this episode is primarily focused on, the Order, takes its name from the organization that the main protagonist in the Turner Diaries was a member of, that being the Order. What we can say with absolute certainty is that by late 1982 to the beginning of 1983, Matthews had blossomed as a white supremacist. He was known for his heavy recruiting drives for the Aryan nations. And in fact, at their national conference in 1983, he actually gave a Speech where he discussed with those in attendance his various efforts to swell the numbers of the organization for what he perceived as a coming race war as well as a, the eventual overthrowing of the federal government. It should be noted that some websites and news sources have it that at the time of these recruitment drives, Matthews was heading an organization known as the White American Bastions, although, again, there is no way to fully verify that information. A lot of this stuff is coming secondhand or from articles that are no longer available, unfortunately. Which brings us to the actual founding of the order. Accounts differ. Some have it that the actual event took place inside of a barn. Others that it took place inside of a bunker that Matthews had built on his property. In any event, in September of 1983, Matthews invited eight other individuals called from both the National Alliance and the Aryan Nations to form a secret group with him that was to be called the Order. These individuals include Kenneth Loft, who was his best friend and neighbor, David Eden Lane, Daniel R. Bauer, Denver Daw Parmenter II, Randolph George Dewey, Bruce Carroll Pierce, Richard Harold Kempf, and William Soderquist. The main goal of the order was to overthrow the Zionist-occupied government through violent means but also to help finance other white nationalist and Christian identity organizations. And to do this, the men decided that they needed to go out and begin robbing banks in order to fund their campaign of terror. And we will get back to the story of the order in just a moment. 
I'm on the road a lot, and it's really hard to stay properly hydrated on the road. There's so many choices between water and sports drinks, many of them filled with sugars and other chemicals that leave you feeling run down afterwards. But what if I told you there is a better solution? Liquid 4 is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. In just one stick you get 5 essential vitamins and 2 times faster hydration than water alone. Use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, and on a long flight. One of the things I like best about the Liquid 4 Hydration Multiplier is their delicious flavor options such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, Concord grape, lemon lime, pina colada, or my personal favorite, watermelon. But Liquid 4 doesn't just taste good, it's good for you. Contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. And it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sport drinks. But best of all, Liquid 4 is non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy, which means that anybody can enjoy it, regardless of their dietary restrictions. And now, just for listeners of my show, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code DCASTPOD. So go to Liquid4, that's IV.com, and use promo code capital D, capital C, A-S-T, capital P-O-D, at checkout to get 20% off your order. Liquid4 Hydration. It's time to take your hydration needs to the next level. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway is the first and most detailed account of the gay porn murder that shocked a nation. Cobra Killer, featured on NBC's Snapped Killer Couples, pulls back the glitzy veil of the gay porn industry to expose a story of deceit, greed, and the ultimate betrayal. Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice tells the story of online gay porn entrepreneur Brian Kosis, whose brutal near-decapitation on a Wednesday in early 2007 sent shockwaves through the small Pennsylvania town where he ran his porn empire. The basis for the Christian Slater film King Cobra, Cobra Killer has been called an addictive page-turner that you won't want to put down, by the San Diego LGBT Weekly and a grisly, gripping documentary account of the 2007 murder by Passport Magazine, Cobra Killer, Gay Porn, Murder, and the Manhunt to Bring the Killers to Justice by Andrew E. Stoner and Peter A. Conway, available on Amazon in paperback and ebook or at bookstores nationwide. All right, we are back. I have a fresh pack of smokes and a new cup of coffee. On October 28, 1983, Matthews, Pierce, Dewey, and Bauer 
committed an armed robbery in Spokane at the Worldwide Video Store. The store was somewhat infamous in Spokane as it dealt primarily in triple X movies. The group walked away with $369 in cash. After this robbery, Matthews realized that these small-time robberies really weren't worth their effort as the risk of being caught far outweighed the financial rewards. So he began to plan their next robbery. This was going on. Lane set up a counterfeit money operation in Hayden Lake, Idaho, using the offset press that the Aryan nations used to print their various publications. Helping Lane in this endeavor was a man by the name of Gary Lee Yarborough. And very quickly, their counterfeit operation ran into trouble when Bruce Pierce was arrested on December 3rd of 1983 in Yakima, Washington for using $50 bills at the Valley Mall in Union Gap. Upon being arrested, it was discovered that he was carrying a concealed weapon on his person. Now, all of these men were known to law enforcement prior to the creation of the order. Pierce found it unnerving, however, when he was approached by a member of the Secret Service while he was in custody and questioned and refused to answer any of the man's questions. So while Pierce sat in jail, Matthews was back at his 20-acre property ruminating on the fact that the longer his friend sat in jail, the more likely it was that he would talk to police. And he was fearful that the man might link back to all the members of the order, himself included, and thus derail Matthew's plan. So on December 18, 1983, Matthews robbed the Innis Arden branch of Citibank which netted him just over $25,000. However, the majority of the money was destroyed when a dye pack went off inside of the bag. On December 23rd, Pierce had his bail reduced to $2,500, and after placing a $250 surety bond, Pierce was released. The group seems to have laid low for the next few months until March 1984 when Matthews, Pierce, Dewey, and Yarborough went to Seattle at which point they cased the Fred Myers store which is located in the Shoreline District. On March 16, 1984, a Continental Armored Transport truck pulled up out in front of the building and was quickly robbed as the guard was leaving the building and it netted them $43,343. On April 3rd, 1984, Bruce Pierce 
stood trial in the U.S. District Court where he pled guilty to trying to pass the counterfeit bills and was sentenced to two years in federal prison. This because he refused to divulge to the court where he had gotten his hands on the counterfeit bills, which to me is kind of funny to think that the court thought this man was going to tell him where he got his illicit goods from. At any rate, the court gave him until April 24th to turn himself into U.S. Marshals. On April 19th, 1984, Matthews, Pierce, Parmenter, Dewey, Camp Yarborough, and a noon member by the name of Andrew Virgil Barnhill went to Seattle, where they robbed another armored car. Further armored car robberies came over the coming months, where they utilized things such as time-delayed bombs in order to steal the goods inside of these vehicles. While all of this was going on, the federal marshals had placed a warrant out for Bruce Pierce's arrest. This happened on April 26th. On April 29th, 1984, Pierce and Kemp placed a bomb underneath the congregation Havath Israel Synagogue in Boise, Idaho. The bomb did little damage, although it's reported that Matthews was enraged at the men, not because he had not authorized the attack, but because the bomb they had built was not powerful to do significant damage or take the lives of any of those inside the building. On May 27, 1984, a group of men traveled to the home of James Dye, who was a member of the National Alliance in Athol, Idaho. As the story goes, members of the order learned that West had been getting drunk in and around the bars inside of Hayden Lake, Idaho, and passing information concerning the order's activities to locals. West was driven into the Kenixu National Forest, where it was alleged that Dewey hit him in the head with a hammer and shot him in the face with a rifle before he was dragged further into the woods and dropped into a pre-dug grave. On June 24, 1984, David Lane traveled to Philadelphia where he met up with another new member of the order by the name of Robert Martinez, whom he handed $30,000 worth of counterfeit money to. Lane instructed Martinez not to use any of the money in the area as it could very easily be traced back to him. However, Martinez ignored these instructions and instead went out and began spending the money in and around the neighborhood of Philadelphia that he lived in. The next day, Martinez returned to a liquor store where he had used some of the phony money the previous day and was confronted by the owner over the usage of these counterfeit bills. Martinez fled the area. However, the owner of the store wrote down the license plate number to Martinez's vehicle, and Martinez ended up being picked up by police 
specifically by the U.S. Secret Service. Now, some of you might be wondering why the heck are the U.S. Secret Service picking this guy up for passing counterfeit bills? The U.S. Secret Service is a member of the Treasury Department, and part of their job is to track down, arrest, and prosecute counterfeiters. After being charged with passing counterfeit bills, Martinez reached out to Matthews asking for money to hire an attorney. However, Matthews informed him he was going to have to wait as they had another big job coming up. On July 1st, Matthews traveled to San Francisco, California, where he met with an associate who happened to work for the Brinks Armored Car Company. This individual told him that the best place for them to strike was in Eureka, just north of Ukiah. On July 19th of 1984, Matthews and six others stopped the Brinks Armored Car on Highway 101, where they robbed it of more than $3.6 million. After escaping, the group fled to Reno, Nevada, where they split up and vanished using multiple vehicles. Eventually, they would meet back up in Idaho, where they would split the proceeds from this robbery. Unbeknownst to other members of the order, however... During the course of the robbery, Matthews had dropped a 9mm Smith & Weston semi-automatic pistol, which was registered to Andrew V. Barnhill. And naturally, upon recovering this weapon and checking its serial number against National Database, the FBI very quickly zeroed in on Barnhill. They placed him under surveillance as well as his associates who came and went. And it was through this surveillance that the FBI began to compile a list of individuals in this organization that up until then they had had relatively little data about, that being the order. Naturally, People figured out that the FBI was checking out Barnhill and his associates, and word got back to Matthews and the other members of the order, who all quickly fled the area and went into hiding. With Yarbrough going into a cabin he had near Samuels, Idaho, it shows the level of sophistication of the members of this group that they took the unusual step to having an associate of theirs rent an office in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where an answering machine was set up so that the members could call in and remain connected to one another. Meanwhile, Thomas Martinez is still sitting in a prison cell waiting for help from Matthews, which never come. This led on October 1st, 1984, to Martinez deciding to become a government witness and cooperate with the FBI, providing them with details on both known members of the order as well as on their various criminal activities. It is known that he told them about the bank heists, as well as provided some information on the murder of Allen Berg. In addition to this, 
Martinez agreed to go out and attempt to collect more information for the FBI. On October 18, 1984, FBI agents arrived at Yarborough's property in Samuels, Idaho, which is when the shootout took place with at least one officer being wounded in the leg and both Yarborough and Matthews fleeing. Matthews invariably led to the downfall of the order by placing a phone call to Martinez asking the man to come out to Oregon where they could have a short meeting. Martinez agreed and Yarbo picked him up at the Portland International Airport before driving him to a nearby hotel where two rooms had been rented. On Saturday, November 24th, the FBI surrounded the hotel where Yarborough was staying. Matthews, who was in the hotel, left the room first and spotted the surveillance, shouting a warning to Yarborough before running across a walkway down a flight of stairs and across a parking lot. Matthews then engaged in a firefight with federal law enforcement officials, wounding one agent and sustaining a wound to his own hand, although he managed to escape on foot. While Yarborough attempted to escape from a bathroom window and instead managed to fall 15 feet into some bushes, at which point he was taken into custody. Searching the hotel room, officers found various weapons, including a silencer-equipped MAC-10, a hand grenade, $30,000, and a notebook containing various names, addresses, and code. Along with this, they also discovered rental agreements to a number of homes in Mount Hood. Making his way to Mount Hood, Matthews met up with the members of the orders who were hiding out there and informed them of the shootout that had taken place, informing them that they were going to be leaving immediately and heading back to Mount Whitby Island, which they promptly did as the FBI began converging on the homes in Mount Hood that the men had rented. While hiding out on his property, Matthews penned what has been called a declaration of war, which, according to some sources, Matthews planned to send to all news outlets in the United States. However, as you are about to see, that is not what happened. No, Matthews was one of those individuals who... As awful as a human being as he was, was a man of his word. He had claimed for years that he would never be taken alive, and that is exactly what happened. On Monday, December 3rd, 1984, the Seattle office of the FBI received an anonymous phone call stating that Matthews and other members of his organization were at Matthews' hideout on Whitby Island and that the men were heavily armed. Naturally, the FBI checks this tip out and finds it to be true, at which point 
an estimated 150 to 200 agents were dispatched to Whitby Island to take the fugitives into custody. Four members were taken into custody by December 7th, 1984. However, Matthews refused to surrender and a 35-hour standoff ensued with Matthews firing upon FBI agents from his hideout. At roughly 6 p.m. on December 8th, agents fired three starburst flares into the house in the hopes that it would set the structure on fire and forth Matthews to leave, thus ending the standoff. However, Matthews refused to leave the property even as the building burned around him and he continued to fire at them sporadically. The following morning, agents were able to enter the structure, at which point they found his burned and blackened remains. The FBI continued to track down members of the order as members of six different states met to discuss how to handle these fugitives from justice. Eventually, it was decided that all of the men and their associates would be tried in a RICO trial. By the time that this was made public, 21 of the 23 defendants had been arrested, the two holdouts being David Tate and Richard Scutari. Now, of these 21, 11 eventually agreed to plead guilty and give testimony against their co-defendants in this 20-count indictment with an additional 67 separate counts being laid against all of the different defendants. On December 30th of 1985, 10 of the defendants were found guilty of racketeering and conspiracy. Six were also convicted of additional federal crimes. And all 10 of these men ended up getting sentences ranging from 40 to 100 years. As for the other defendants, on April 15, 1985, David Tate was stopped by two Missouri state troopers and opened fire on them with a machine gun, killing one of the author officers and wounding another before fleeing. And he was captured five days later in a park in Harrison, Arkansas and was later convicted of murder and assault, being sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. March 19, 1986, Richard J. Scarati was arrested at a break shop in San Antonio, Texas, where he had been working and living for months. On June 5th, of that year, Scarati ended up being sentenced to 60 years in federal prison. All told, Andrew Virgil Barnhill, age 29, was sentenced to 40 years. Jean Margaret Craig was sentenced to 40 years. Randolph George Dewey, age 35, was given 100 years. Randall Paul Evans, age 30, was given 40 years. Richard Harold Kemp, age 23, was given 60 years. 
David Eden Lane, age 40, was given 40 years. Artie McBearty, age 53, was given 40 years. Bruce Carroll Pierce, age 31, was given 100 years. Frank Lee Silva, age 27, was given 40 years. David Charles Tate, age 22, sentenced to life without parole. Gary Lee Yarbrough, age 30, sentenced to 60 years. While the following individuals pled guilty before trial and agreed to provide testimony. Thomas Bentley, James Sherman Dye, Ronald Allen King, Kenneth Joseph Loff, Robert E. Murky, Sharon K. Murky, William Anthony Nash, Jackie Lee Norton, Denver Daw Parmeter II, Randall Eugene Rader, Richard Joseph Scarati, and George Franklin Zangler. All of them received sentences ranging from six months to 60 years, while other co-conspirators remain unindicted. Which brings us right back to where we started, the murder of Allen Berg. Prosecutors believe that they did not have sufficient evidence to be able to convict the four members that they had in custody of actually having killed Allen Berg. Instead, they decided to charge these four individuals with violating Berg's civil rights. Those who were charged with this crime were Gene Craig, David Lane, Bruce Pierce, and Richard Scarati, although only Lane and Pierce were convicted of violating his civil rights. As the story goes, basically... Matthews and a group of six others traveled to Colorado with the intention of murdering Allenberg, who, along with numerous other individuals of the Jewish faith, including Norman Lear, had been placed on a kill list. Berg, through his radio show, had so enraged members of the order that he was bumped to the top of this list. The official story is that these men rented a hotel room in or near Denver from where they plotted and planned. Because prior to this traveling to Colorado, Gene Craig had gone out and done some reconnaissance and kind of filled them in on the man's movements. It was stated that Matthews and Lane had acted as lookouts while Pierce insisted on being the trigger man. Lane ended up being sentenced to 190 years and Bruce Pierce 252 years for violating Allenberg's civil rights. Years later, when asked about the crime, Lane refused to comment specifically, instead stating, the only thing I have to say about Allenberg is, regardless of who did it, he has not mouthed his hate-whitey propaganda from his 50,000-watt Zionist pulpit for quite a few years. Lane, who was incarcerated at the Federal Correction Institute, Terre Haute, Indiana, died at the age of 68 on May 28, 2007 from a seizure. While Bruce Pierce, who was incarcerated at the Federal Correctional Complex in Union County, Pennsylvania, 
died of natural causes at the age of 56 on August 16th, 2010. So there you have it, the story of the order and the murder of Alan Berg. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode and in fact learned something about the nature of white supremacy and how these SOBs operate. Please don't forget to check out our sponsors. You can find direct links to their websites in the show notes. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and please leave a five-star review. Also, check out the merch shop. All the money that comes in from that really does help with the production of this show. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in conjunction with Big Blue Podcasts. Stay morbid.